Hi, this is Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. From Stroller Stringer, thank you so much for having us to your offices. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for joining us. So just, uh, what's the latest? I mean, we're going to get into a bunch of stuff, but what's what's been the most recent uh, focus for you? You put out an MWE report. Anything else you want to highlight? Look, a lot of the work of this office is about making sure that we can have an affordable city. There are so many people that I grew up with back in the day growing up in Washington Heights when the city was on the edge of bankruptcy, when there were 2,000 murders a year. My A-train was literally considered a rolling crime scene. My mother said we had to sit with the conductor, and there were some real issues back then. And what always struck me growing up was that there were pioneers in our neighborhood and now in neighborhoods around the city that stayed and built this city and made it the place it is today. And they're the ones that are being pushed out. They're the ones who can't make it here because the city has become unaffordable for the people who built our city. And adding to that, is that new immigrants and people from all over the world that want to come to the city, they're being blocked because the entrance fee is now a $2 million condo. And so a lot of the work I do every day is figuring out policy to create opportunities for more affordability, for more economic opportunity. That's certainly true in our housing initiatives, but it's also true in terms of how we think about education and how we're able to give relief to struggling New Yorkers. So we spent a lot of time this year developing our NYC under three uh, proposal, which would create the largest subsidized childcare program in the nation so that parents who make less than $30,000 a year could have subsidized childcare, meaning they could get back into the workforce. We would ramp that up. For people who make $51,000, we'd have a 50% subsidy and it would go up to 100000 That's the kind of work we think about, childcare deserts, high cost of living. And so that has been really the 2019 work for the most part. Why does that? Why is that the controller's office focus? I mean, how does that fit into your you know, city charter mandated responsibilities? Connect, connect that to oh, what? Oh, three words. Yeah. Three words. Chief financial officer. Mm-hmm. And I have to think about the economy and how it works for everybody. So through our audits, through our investigations, and through, through our policy initiatives, we have to think about the city both short-term and also the economic implication of doing nothing in the long-term. Speaking broadly, your description of the landscape in the city, the challenges people face, we could have gone back in time and played that in 2017, 2013, as people describing what faced the city. Do you think that that landscape has changed at all since then, for better, for worse, in different ways? Is the affordability challenge any different than it was six or seven years ago? Well, it, you were talking talk about a six-year landscape, so I wouldn't call that a landscape. I would just say it's six years ago. We've had many of the same issues that started at the beginning of my term and this administration's term as we do today. Obviously, there's been improvement in some areas and less improvement in other areas. But when you have a homeless crisis where tonight 60,000 people will sleep in shelter, half of them are children, and now we're spending $3.2 billion managing that crisis, where six years ago we had the same amount of people in homeless shelters, but we were spending $1.4 billion to manage the crisis. It seems to me that this is a broken system. 
we just came out with a very compelling report that analyzes why we're seeing a spike in homelessness and what we now show that over the last few years, 41% of the population of homeless shelters are domestic violence survivors. Women and children in the shelter system and they can't get out. So where's the strategy? Where's the programmatic response to something that is staring this administration right in the face? And my job, is when they're not listening and not thinking, is to show not just the state of play, but what's the roadmap to actually make fundamental change. And that's what we've tried to do in the last few years. In terms of some of that, I mean, we could easily say in some ways the city continues to be less and less affordable. As you indicated, the, the current mayor has thrown a lot of resources at the problem. As you say, some of it probably poorly managed, misplaced perhaps, but you know, certainly hundreds of thousands of units of affordable housing coming either online or being preserved. Wait, 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 wait. what did you just say? <laughs> affordable housing. Affordable for whom? Right. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's the question, right, is, um, is the issue of whether resources are being allocated properly. So that's something that sure. you're looking at all the, well, all the time. You know, we've had a very flush economy. We've had big city budget surpluses. Uh, even there has been some years when I've tried to look at and say, look, there's some trouble on the horizon. We've just I, I, I couldn't really do that because we were very flush. But the answer to being financially to have a lot of money was not to simply throw money against the wall and see if we could fix a problem without any accountability. And when the housing program uh, went in the wrong direction, I said, let's do better and actually build housing for the people who need it the most because 30% of the people who live who live in shelters actually have jobs. I've seen it myself, just like the rest of us. They get up in the morning, they come back to the shelter, and they can't get out. And that's because we're not building the low-income housing that we've always built in the city. And I've said over the last many years that we need a new progressive housing proposal that has to build housing for the people who need it the most, meaning people who make under $30,000 a year need housing. Now, they're cooks, they're taxi drivers. Many of the people who need this housing take care of our kids and our parents, and yet they have nowhere to go. We know this, and yet we have to change the direction of the city to meet the needs of people who are struggling if we're going to be a progressive and a city that is managed very well. You mentioned looking for clouds on the horizon in terms of the city's budget outlook. And I'm curious, you know, we have the November modification coming. Um, you mentioned in earlier report this year some uh, increase in pessimism in the city in the third quarter in the business sector. Uh, speaking short term over the mm -hmm. next year or two, do you see problems coming in terms of the city budget? I have said for the last couple of years that we should be very cautious. Uh, we're not going to see the kind of surpluses we, uh, we've been used to. I do think the economy is tightening. And we all know in this city there always seems to be some episodic moment uh, that requires the additional dollars to get us through a crisis, whether it's a terrorist attack, whether it's uh, Hurricane Sandy. So what I've said to the mayor and the city council is, look, you got a lot of money sitting there. I know there's a lot of member items and pet projects but you've got to put money aside for a rainy day. We used to have 
secured 18% of spend. We're now down to 10% of spend, maybe 11%. I do hope in the last two budgets before the mayor leaves office that he will recognize that surplus is critical because whatever comes our way in a turning economy, especially the unpredictable situation in Washington and Trump, the international markets that continue to make waves, whether it's Brexit or something in another country, China, we have to be prepared. And we do not have enough money being saved, and I've argued for that for many years. Are we, has the city budget grown to a point and scheduled to grow, I guess, at something like another 4% this fiscal year or something, something along those lines? Are we in a position where even if those budget cushions and reserves are at the level you want, okay, that's there for an emergency, but are we at a, at a point where this budget has grown so much that it's inevitable that sometime in the next half a decade or so, there's going to be real tightening and cuts that need to be made, or, or is that not look, inevitable? I, look, you know, a budget is a document of priorities by our elected leadership, certainly the mayor and the city council, and I have, you know, and I think that's the proper role for, 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 for those folks to identify priorities and try to fix it. What I'm more concerned about is the amount of money we're spending on critical initiatives without seeing results. So when I mentioned the homeless budget going from 1.4 billion to 3.2 billion, we should, the goal should be to cut homelessness in half. The goal should be to uncouple managing the crisis and housing and actually break down those silos. We have a mental health initiative that $850 million, that's a lot of money for little to show for it. And I have no problem spending money on critical housing issues, mental health issues, education issues, but we should expect from our city government accountability, transparency, and success. And when there's little success, then it's my job to blow the whistle and say, hey folks, let's, let's realign a program, let's dig a little deeper, let's become more transparent for the public to see. And that has been what I've tried to do with this initiatives that I support. We have to make them have real value because we're spending a lot of money. And if we can create, you know, if we can tackle mental health and homelessness and quality education, spending large sums of money that result in real success, well, then that, that's a priority the people and our government has, have decided to pursue. So that, that stuff is not happening. You know, it's, we're, we're finishing the six years here of just about everybody who's, you know, been in office coming in in 2014. Um, and we're, we're not seeing the level of results a lot of people like yourself want to see in those areas. We're seeing increased spending. What's the root of that problem? Is it because the, the city's been so flush that there's so much money to throw around that city count, the city council has not been tight enough on insisting on more results before the spending is given? What's the root of the issue? Is it just that the, the mayor hasn't been a good enough manager? What's the issue? What I would like, what I think is that we have to get to this place where results matter. And it's important to have pro progressive ideals and values. Obviously, I'm certainly someone described that way, but we also have to have management and expectation of fixed problems. It is not just enough to talk the talk, you gotta walk the walk. When I go, whether it's to a church on Sunday or a precinct council meeting or a tenant meeting, 
people are sitting there with their five-year-old granddaughter or child, they don't want to hear speechifying. They want to know that we politicians are preparing this city for their children in terms of the economy, quality education, and real economic opportunity. No one wants to hear it anymore. They want a progressive, but they want management to solve these crises. And my job as controller is to do that pushing and prodding. And sometimes, you know, I got to push a little harder. And sometimes we try to negotiate by offering some sensible plans. And a lot of times when I go out to community-based organizations, people say to me, hey, wait a minute, how come you're not looking at this aspect of government? And I want you to focus more on this area. And then I go back to this office and say, hey, folks, people want to know, so let's give the people what they expect me to, to give them, which is answers and policy changes and, and oversight. Let's talk about children. You mentioned earlier your child care proposal uh, a couple of years ago, Mayor Bloomberg, sorry, Mayor de Blasio, um, talked about expanding the pre-K to being a 3K program and, and building that up over time. Um, distinguish your proposal from, from 3K and talk to us about the role you see that child care proposal playing in terms of workforce and in terms of the educational aspects of it. Well, let me just say that Bill de Blasio's best accomplishment, and I mean this with all sincerity, was the pre-K program. He came into office, he made a big plan happen, he was laser focused, he was able to get the money, and not only did he expand pre-K for all, but he's also now working on 3K. And the only way I believe we can now segue to zero to three, where by the way, 80% of brain development will occur during those years, uh, the only way we can expand that and bring 20,000 people, mostly women and people of color, back into the workforce is because the mayor has given us the template for how to do this. So my plan is very much the line, borrowing pages out of his book, which is one, we need to have a ramp up of six years in our proposal, going from 180 million to 650 million. We need to invest money in a capital expansion because our Pre, our report showed that we have these childcare deserts in so many communities. So, like pre-K, we have to build it out. We also have to have a funding stream, and our proposal is to go to the biggest companies with the higher payroll taxes, the top five percent, and let them pay half a percent to help fund the program. And we ramp it up so that we we can actually have accountability on the way up. But that's basically what Mayor De Blasio did, and we should now try to double down. Imagine having. Uh, 3K and pre-K and zero to three. And why stop there? Let's keep moving all the way up so we can deliver our kids the greatest education they need. Are you subsidizing all incomes in the, in the eventually? We because pre-K, you know, one of the actual criticisms of pre-K and 3K are that you're subsidizing that early education for people who can easily afford it on the private market. And so some people have said, Shouldn't this be more targeted? Well, our proposal is to fully subsidize for the people who are at the poverty line, especially people under 30,000, we would have full subsidy. We would create half a subsidy for families at 51,000 and have some subsidy up to 100,000. There is a national conversation about you know, child care for all, but again, I wanna to put together a program that I think we can achieve in the city. If we were able to do this, it would be the largest expansion of childcare in the country. 
that would transform and give opportunity for other cities to learn what we're doing. And you don't have any problem with 3K being for everybody? No, absolutely. And, and again, we have to invest more in early education. It's where it all begins. It where it's, it's where it starts. And we want to make sure that we deliver for the kids, the 1.1 million kids who are going to public school and the kids beyond that. Look, I got skin in this game, <laughs> as some of you around the table do. You know, a seven and a half year old in second grade, a six year old in first grade. You know, I'm a public school parent. And I think about this every day. And we were talking earlier about what does it mean to be a parent? You, know, you take your kid to school and you think about what he or she needs. You try to worry about them every day. But you got to worry about the whole school building and everyone involved because you want to lift up every kid. And the truth is that there are kids because of family circumstance and life circumstance that don't start the race the same way other kids do. So some parents can't afford $21,000 for childcare and then can go to work and make a lot of money and come home and life is good, right? There are other parents that could never get to 21000 because they're making 21000 a year and they have to decide whether to, how are they going to take care of their kid. That means they drop out of the workforce. They they curtail their professional aspirations for the child. In the greatest city on earth, why would we ever want that to be the status quo? So zero to three is a game changer, and I think we should pursue it and work with this administration to lay the groundwork for it. There is a tax change that has to happen. Senator Ramos uh, and uh, uh, Assemblywoman Walker are leading the charge along with Assemblymembers New and Senator, um, and Senator Hoyleman because we got to get a change in the, in oh, the taxes. Back to Albany. But, but you know, you can't play checkers. you got to play chess, mm -hmm. and you got to get it done. So let's lay the groundwork now. An outcomes question related to that. The pre-K full uh, implementation began in, I think, the fall of 2015. So my, my skin in the game, my 9-year-old, is in third grade this year. So I think he is part of that cohort. So this is the first testing year that people from the full implementation of pre-K be taking state tests. Do you feel we should see some impact on performance because of the educational impact of pre-K? Do you think we will see that? What should we be looking for in terms of outcomes? You know, every, every educator I talk to pretty much says the same thing. The earlier you educate by offering opportunity, the better the child can do. There's a lot of debate about testing, but I think it's pretty clear that a child has a better shot to make it if they're in an early learn environment. And so I believe in investing in early education. The reason I believe in zero to three is, you know, if a brain gets developed during those years, why would you start in, you know, the year after the brain is 80 percent, you know. Uh, but how do we know if it's working? I mean, I guess that is one question well, that skeptics might ask, right? We, that, is, that is why you have to have a transparent government and you have to have various elected officials do their jobs. The chair of the Education Committee and the City Council should hold hearings. You know I will be the first one out there doing that analysis as long as I'm controller. And that's good because though we laud programs and we're proud of our initiatives, there's always room for improvement and they never quite land where we should be totally accepting of, of success. We want to build even more to it. But you're somewhat skeptical about using the standardized testing scores as the key metric, or I mean, it's, it's a it's a it's a metric. It's not the only metric, as uh, as we all know. And the more again options we have to evaluate children, and the more opportunity we give kids, 
to show just how smart they are because look there's nothing better smarter than a New York kid New York City kid right <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean it's just a fact I mean I don't hey, mean two to, of us it, two, two of the three of us here so you're <laughs> yeah, out you're so, outnumbered yeah, I mean, no Jared no, Jared you're, 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 you're smart you're, 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 I mean but there's know, different yeah, there's yeah, different yeah. tiers of where, where, where did you where did you where did you come from uh, <laughs> Boston and uh, Hartford Area. Mayors come from Boston. Yeah, yeah. For now. Yes. Hold off on your campaign for a few years. Let's come back to housing. Um, The you you have a housing plan at both of our publications, of course. um, Covered it. Um, I wanted to connect that to sort of this this phrase that I hear you use a lot, which is real community based planning. And I, I was hoping maybe today just to hear a little bit more from you about what exactly that means, because sometimes people hear community-based planning and start to think, oh, that's going to slow everything down and we won't be able to build the housing we need. Can you explain what, to use your phrase, real community-based planning looks like So on housing? Well, housing in particular, the community-based planning process is to engage neighborhoods to get the housing that we actually need. The challenge for this administration was they didn't believe in community-based planning. So for all their big aspirational goals, they couldn't work with the community, one, to figure out the actual affordable housing the communities needed. So instead they built housing under the guise of being affordable that turned out to be unaffordable for most of our neighborhoods because they didn't listen to the community residents. In my years as borough president, To me, it was all about working with the community boards, working to gain consensus. Obviously, community boards don't get a veto, but they certainly have the right to scrutinize and be part of the process. I've found that when you engage communities, you always get a better result. Now, are there a lot of long meetings? Are there a lot of different opinions? When I, you know, I was appointed to a community board by Percy Sutton, the first teenager appointed two of us. So I've spent most of my life at community board meetings. When I reflect back on my life, will I have liked to have gotten some of those hours back? Yes. But at the end of the day, that's how you build communities with the community. You can't just go in and say, this is what we're going to build. And look what's happened. In so many neighborhoods, we made, the city made a deal with revenue developers. We gave, They got the density and they got the land and so many economically diverse communities, and then they said, we're going to build these tall buildings, we're going to give you a 30% affordable housing, and then when I started doing the calculations, like in East New York, only a handful of people, long-term residents, could afford the affordable. So if they had spent more time learning about the communities, perhaps we would have been different. My housing plan is about community engagement. It's about creating a land bank and a land trust. It's about cataloging all the vacant property that the city owns, bringing in non-for-profit organizations. Look, the revenue developers, many of them are REITs, can't build affordable housing. They're not built for it. They actually can't afford to build affordable housing given their business model. But you know what? There's a lot of community organizations that would jump at the chance to build the new public housing, the new Michelama housing. And we should be moving our housing plan to gear to those vacant lots. And and that is what I've spent many years, and that's why I criticize the council and the mayor for doing these rezonings without understanding what would it mean to gentrify, or the result would be to gentrify or accelerate gentrification in so many communities. 
One of the biggest issues in the affordable housing arena, obviously, is public housing. And as you know, in order to uh, try to save that, the Blasio administration has proposed converting many thousands of units to uh, a Section 8 voucher through RAD and PACT and Section 18, and also constructing new buildings on NYCHA land to generate revenue to help with the bottom line. Um, some critics have lambasted both of those ideas as forms of privatization of public housing. What do you think of that critique? And do you support those efforts that de Blasio has mapped out for, for preserving public housing? This is another failing of this administration. As you know, as controller, I have audited uh, NYCHA more, more than any elected official in modern history. And the disconnect between management and the tenants and the deplorable conditions people live in because of that bad management has created a real distrust uh, between tenants and community-based organizations. So when tenants worry about RAD or infill development, they should because they see new protocols being put in place and they know, they know instinctively it's not going to end well because this administration has totally has totally botched any attempt to make NYCHA better. And that's why it's so unfortunate that despite great revenue uh, and opportunity to make those fixes, that every turn of the wheel has been a failure. So obviously I would like to see RAD work and I would like to see infill work, but there has to be a contract with the tenants that their security is absolute and that privatization can occur because unfortunately a lot of the housing folks in the administration talk out of both sides of their mouth. And I was just in a, a, a building last week in, in, in um, El Barrio in, you know, in East Harlem. No, no heat or gas since April. And talking to a 90-year-old, 92-year-old tenant in the hallway another one who just had heart surgery, and a mother with a little boy. And then you come back and say, we're going to tear down your building, and don't worry, we're going to replace it. And then you look at the record and what people have had to deal with. Of course they're suspicious. And it goes back to that notion of community and community-based planning, because you've got to sell it to the people who have been victimized by the government. And, and to me, public housing, when you study the history of government-sponsored housing. Man, LaGuardia built public housing in 1938. Now, he had a relationship with Roosevelt. You know the story, right? He'd go to Washington, start to cry to Roosevelt. Roosevelt would give him more money for public housing and then bemoan the fact that he got hustled. I always wonder if de Blasio went to Trump and said, hey, I need more money and sit there and cry. <laughs> yeah. What well, if he cried? Mm -hmm. uh, but it was built in 1938 as a great experiment to build housing for the middle class and it worked for many years until the divestment. And so I want to go back to a housing strategy that is all-encompassing, that's not about piecemeal development. We have to do massive investment in public housing and a massive management change in order to help the people. So there's a new, there is a new chair of NYCHA. There's a new plan that relatively recently, you know, the newest de Blasio NYCHA plan, new chair, federal monitor, uh, Let's just say things are in a little better shape management-wise. That's yet to be seen, but let's just say for a second it is. Is this idea of a significant building program? You just said they have to get it right, but but you do see this as well, an only viable one of the only viable options for bringing. In I think revenue. I think there are more. I think there are more options. I think that 
I certainly don't fault people for trying, but please, but the jury is out on management. I, I was yes. I was just when you when you don't provide heat since or gas since April, and I have to go to a NYCHA development to push and pull to just get basic heat for tenants. You know, it's hard to sell that to tenants. But look, the protocols that they're using, we have to see if they work. I'm not. You know, I'm on the uh, committee. Uh, you know, they finally put me on the committee on, on Fulton Houses. Mm -hmm. Congressman Nadler wanted me to be on it. Jermani Williams as well. Happy to work to see if we can get, build consensus for the infill development. But we need to think about a building-by-building building approach to make those emergency repairs and get this done. And we also have to come up with a new revenue stream. My proposal is to at least until we have a Democratic president, to find revenue to fix the boilers and do those capital repairs. I want to see Battery Park proceeds uh, earmarked for NYCHA. It takes the city controller, the governor, and the mayor to agree to do that. And again, there's more, I guess what I'm saying to you is there's more to do. Mm -hmm. Switching gears, if you're part of the pun, uh, what do you think about the car culture in our city? Is that as problematic as Speaker Johnson has said, is that a real obstacle to the kind of growth? Look, I, I, think, I think there's a growing concern about how we have overly invested in cars and superhighways without fully exploring the amazing transportation alternatives that we have, whether it's buses or subways and bike lanes. We need a comprehensive transportation plan and a real way to pay for it. One of the reports that I think was very fascinating to me that we did was trying to get an understanding of buses and destinations. And I was very glad that the MTA looked at some of my recommendations and started to implement a redesign of where our buses and, and trains are, you know, are headed. You know, the old mantra or, or the old economy, right, when we had the car culture in full swing was this Robert Moses view of people living in the so-called outer boroughs, coming to work in midtown Manhattan, rush hour starting at 7 a.m., rush hour finishing at 9 a.m., and then rush hour starts at 5 p.m., everyone's home by 7 p.m., you walk the dog, you feed the kids, every light's out at 9 o'clock. Uh, this is before the Smokes 70s. cigarettes, you gotta have time to cigarettes. Cigarettes, cigarettes on the whatever. Um, <laughs> that's changed. Today, 83% of job development is in Queens and Brooklyn. People are working in Brooklyn, living in Brooklyn. Queens is living in Queens. The Bronx is also creating economic development, meaning Manhattan is no longer the epicenter of the economy. We should design a transportation system that recognizes that we are a five-borough economy. That's actually the good news. And through a combination of protected bike lanes and protected bus lanes, and also figuring out a way to dismantle as much as we can the superhighway infrastructure of Moses. That is something that I believe passionately about. And you know, you can't bend the car culture, you gotta break it, but you gotta break it with real alternatives for people in the city to get out of their cars and have infrastructure. One of the uh, areas that we are leading on in my office was saying to the Department of Transportation, look, if you're gonna replace the BQE, don't do it Moses style, do it community style. And we're working with community-based organizations in Brooklyn on multiple plans. I have a plan that we authored uh, to create that open space, let's lanes. You know, if you stop building the highways, more people will seek other means of transportation. So um, 
And right, you, I, I do know your uh, your bus report definitely helped shape the conversation. Some of that. Do, do you generally like what you've seen from the busway, 14th Street? You think that's a good model for other places? I was the first elected official that said do it. Yeah, I didn't say maybe let me talk to somebody. I'll think about it, and then you know I'll be the first one to ride the bus. What I said was we have to explore ways to break the car culture by offering alternatives. And this one happens to be a success. I think we should look at it in all communities. But again, you got to manage it, figure out how to do it. And then you have to lead. You have to be the first one out there and <laughs> say, look, let's change this, right? Mm -hmm. And I was happy to have played that role. Shift in our last uh, five or eight minutes here to a few political topics. The presidential race is upon us. You've endorsed uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren for president. Do you want to just give a quick uh, explanation to the listeners about that endorsement? I, maybe it just comes from my work, but I kind of like someone who has a plan for that. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so it just feels right to me. Uh, I do think that she has a powerful economic message that I think will play in the red states. I don't think people are seeing that yet. Uh, I do see excitement about her candidacy. I like her substance. I like somebody who's going to put it out there and, and have a discussion, whether it's on housing, education, uh, the economy, Wall Street. And uh, But I want her to win. But let me tell you, you know, Bernie's making a compelling case. Uh, the other candidates, whether it's Kamala or others, we have to support our nominee. Trump has to go, and that has to be our biggest priority at the end of the day. If he does enter and remain in the race, what should voters in other cities and states know about Mike Bloomberg? Well, he, Mike Bloomberg is going to have to take his record in New York City and sell it. You know, I'm not supporting him for president. I have great respect for him. Uh, obviously, he raised a compelling apology that was long overdue, but it was made, and I think that we need to see more from him on criminal justice reform, decarceration, uh, and why he's in the Democratic primary, which is what we've asked of all the candidates who entered some time ago. And I would say that about Deval Patrick as well, that we need to hear from them on a broad range of issues. I think Elizabeth Warren has set the bar on what, um, you know, on how to Get, you know, get issues out there. Whether it's the presidential race uh, for Democrats or even here in the city, do you have any concerns about how kind of far left the discussion is moving? Is that something that, you know, New Yorkers, especially you as controller, you know, with this mandate of fiscal responsibility and such, is that something you've heard around the city at all from either business leaders or even just regular New Yorkers, everyday New Yorkers who are worried a little bit that we're going too far to the left in the in the discussion of the presidential primary or even here in the city? Well, look, I, 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 I've been a progressive for so long they used to call me a liberal, right, remember? <laughs> and uh, and I don't think that's the challenge. I mean, because let's identify what a progressive, what, what it means to be a progressive. It means to help people most in need, address issues of homelessness, quality education, talk about, you know, one standard for crim criminal justice reform but also investing in an economy that reaches all five boroughs. That's what a progressive in the short, you know, in the 32nd <laughs> means to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't think of that as particularly controversial. I do think we have to continue to work on our progressive side, whether it's zero to three pre-K, uh, affordable housing plan. But I also think voters are demanding a sense of management, proven results, I think we need a little more grown-up discussion of how we get there. 
and that's and that's what I hear from people. But no, I think people want a government that is going to be for all people in all zip codes and not just to the people who already have tremendous wealth. We have to make sure that we lift every boat up. And that's what I've tried to point out in the work we've done in the criminal justice space on fines and fees and incarceration. These are all, this is about being smart on criminal justice issues. And that's what I think is important. It's nearly two years off, but it's not that far away. The 2021 municipal campaign what do you think that will be about? The last big race, 2013, was a referendum on Bloomberg. What will this be about? This is going to be a very important election. It's actually not in two years. The primary has been moved up. And June right, 2021. 21, and right mm -hmm. after the presidential race, we're going to have a race not just for mayor, but for almost every mm -hmm. municipal office. And it is a time to really think about what we want our city to be. So you got to take stock of what the good and the bad has been, and then where do we go from here? You know, I'm having uh, house parties around the city, uh, uh, and it's amazing to get people in the living room, even in the heat of a presidential election, and they love New York so much, like I do, and they just want to talk about New York. And everyone has an opinion, and I think it's great. And that is what I spend a lot of my free time doing. What are the biggest it's, issues you hear about? You know, it's, it's what we talked about today. It's an unaffordable city. I'm worrying about my kids' education. I'd like to see more results, given the amount of money we're spending in city government. And I want to feel that there is, that, that the, the, we have the best people in these offices doing the job for the people. And so I'll continue to report back to you <laughs> of what people are saying. But I think a campaign in 21 is going to be issue-oriented. Uh, it's going to be some great people running from many different offices. So we're really going to have a rich debate on the future of the city. Lastly, for me at least, and maybe Jared has one more, but um, the city just passed by referendum ranked choice voting. Do you have a sense of how that will affect the mayoral race that you're obviously very much expected to be a participant in? Um, is that something... You know, of course, everybody's armchair sort of starting to game it out. How do you think that's going to impact that campaign? Well, I, I haven't like I haven't armchair gamed it out politically, but I can well, now tell you. Chance. Well, okay, then here we go. <laughs> so this is what I think. Uh, it passed overwhelmingly, seventy-seven percent. It's now in our city charter, and m my sense, and the reason I supported it, is because it really does force candidates to go everywhere in every community. Now, for me. As someone who has been throughout the city, it's, just, it's in my DNA, so it's not a campaign strategy. I can't help myself. So uh, it's going to be good for candidates to be in every community, to be in every borough, and to not try to game the system, but really say, hey, I just got to make my case to everybody. And that's what ranked choice voting really is about. And I think it will boost turnout. And I think the runoff was just too expensive with low voting turnout. And we've seen that people of all different backgrounds benefit from ranked choice. So I'm optimistic. Uh, I think the Board of Elections have to, has to get on it. They can't screw this up like they have everything else. And, uh, and we have to start getting, you know, start getting ready. Well, Comptroller Scott Stringer, thanks so much for taking time with us. Thank you, thanks. all of you, for being thank you. here. <laughs>